You are listening to More to the Story, a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Enns of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, More to the Story podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday Sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Now, here is more to the story. Welcome to the Forefront Church Podcast. Last week's sermon was on the book of Joshua, and the big question was, is God a moral monster? And with us today, Pastor Darren Enns, how you doing? Hey, doing good. Good. Pastor Drew Tarwater, how you doing today? Hey guys, I'm good. Good. And I'm Rob Blasey. And the question today is, Drew, is God a moral monster? Can you recap a little bit of what you talked about in Joshua on Sunday? Yeah, we kicked off uh, the new the new summer series called Old Kingdom, and we started off in the book of Joshua. And if you know the, the narrative, you know, you've got God's people under Moses had refused to go into the promised land, and so they wandered the desert in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses dies. God calls Joshua and says, Joshua, it's time to arise and go. So get get your people ready. Uh, Joshua and the leaders, they cross the Jordan River and they go into the land of Canaan, which is the promised land. And then over the course of the book of Joshua, we see that they begin to really infiltrate that area and that becomes their new home for uh, the rest of their time as a nation. We, we kind of spent a little bit of time just kind of teeing up this topic of, is God a moral monster? You know, if you talk to a lot of atheists or a lot of people who aren't believers, you, you'll, you'll hear them say things along the lines of, well, it seems like the God of the Old Testament is very different than the God of the New Testament and Jesus. And one of the reasons is they look at the book of Joshua and they see, hold on a second, it looks like the army of Israel just goes in and slaughters all of these people. If God is a God of love, then how could God just go and kill men, women, and children and wipe out a whole people? And so it has led guys like Richard Dawkins and um, you know a, a lot of these uh, really kind of new atheists to say, well, God was a moral monster or he was a bloodthirsty egomaniac. He wanted to do ethnic cleansing. And I, that's a thing I want us to talk about today is, well, what does the Bible really say about this if you slow down and read it? Is God really a moral monster or is there something else going on here? So yeah, so the, the big question there is I guess at least they admit there's a thing as morals. If they, if they're, you know, claiming God has, you know, bad morals. So then the question is like, okay, so there's a moral law giver who's judging God. Right. Yeah. It's like what C.S. Lewis says, like there's this law of right and wrong written on your heart. Like we've all got it. It's what the apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter one. So yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's a good place to start with. It's chemicals in our brain just for survival <laughs> of the fittest. Oh yeah. So, so what's really going on here? Like why does God want them out? Yeah, it's I think if you jump right in and you you look at just this idea of what what's going on is remember God has rescued his people from Egypt. He's brought them to a place where he's going to teach them what it looks like to live in this community and now he's going to move them in the promised land. And one of the things that God says over and over again to them is that they need to come to understand that he is God alone. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, there's what we know as the Shema, and it's when God tells the people, 
I am one, right? There's, there's not this array of gods like you had in Egypt or that they have in Canaan. Like, I am the only God. And, you know, you need to learn and you need to, to take my, really my word and you need to write it on your hearts and you need to write it on your doorposts of your house and on your gates and you need to teach it to your kids. And he was preparing them um, so that when they went into the land of Canaan, they wouldn't be distracted by the idolatry and all the false worship. So question for on. you. What was that word? Shema? Did I, did I say that right? The Shema. Shema. Okay, then I'm going to phone a Darren. And Darren, <laughs> what does Shema mean? Like, what does it mean in the Hebrew as they use it? Yeah, Shema means to hear or listen. And so in, in that, um, you know, Deuteronomy 6, uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, is one. The word is, is Shema behind that, hear. Interesting. And so the, one of the stories I heard why all this happened, and I think we both read the same book, Drew, on this with, the, you know, is God a moral monster? Paul, what's his last name? Paul Copen. Copen. And I think, Darren, you read this book too, right? Yeah. Is that God uses nations, whether they followed him or not, for judgment. Yeah, that's, that's one of the main reasons uh, of why this happens. There's a verse in, in Genesis 15, 16, when God is making his covenant with Abraham. Um, it says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. Uh, and, and then it says, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So the Amorites are, are a group of people who dwell in Canaan. And God says here that it's not time for you to occupy the land, that their sin has not reached its full measure yet. The idea behind that is, is, is that when the Israelites come back in the book of Joshua, it's a replaying almost of the flood story. In the flood story, we had the sin of humanity reaching its full measure, and God had to deal with it. In God's goodness, he had to preserve a remnant of humanity that was going to allow life to, to persist. If, if God would not have done that, the humans would have destroyed the earth. And so God doing that is, is a mercy. And here in, in Joshua, this, the Israelites are essentially in the place of a flood. God promised that he would never send a worldwide flood again, and yet he still uses nations as, as part of his judgment. And then this happens later when the Israelites, when their sin reaches their full measure, we see the Assyrians and Babylonians coming in and taking them into captivity and a lot of destruction happening there. So it's not just that it happens um, as God's people. They're not the only instrument of God's justice. There are other nations that do this in, in the biblical times. I think it's a little hard to apply that today uh, because no one is the covenant people of God or I say no nation is the covenant nation of God like the Israelites were. There's a new covenant and, and the church has a, has a role to play. But it, it's hard to say like when, when there's wars, oh, it's God's judgment or, or whatever. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And then, and some of the wording of it too, guys, there's like a, how to put it, it's like, it's a historical account, but there's also like sloganism, if that makes sense, is like some of the, like the example of like, put every man, woman, and child to the sword. It's not, it's not, is it what's, how do we define line? Like is it hyperbole is the right word or like, what, what are we looking at here, Drew? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It, you know, you read that and you say, well, is, is it an exaggeration or, you know, cause you'll, you'll read these different texts and it say that everybody was, everybody was killed, man, woman, child, and beast. And, 
you, you know, you're trying to reconcile that with, with who God is. And so I, I think you have to look back to, and this is where context comes into consideration here. You have to look back and, and, and look at ancient Near East literature. And in ancient Near East literature, when, when you spoke about military language, it was referred to often as propaganda. And, and so um, they would refer to things as everyone and all and all things. And so if there was a war in, in, in ancient Near East and they were referring to the one who, the, 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 you know, the, the group that won, they would refer to them as the one that, that, that wiped out everyone, that destroyed everything. And so it's not an exaggeration. It's really just the way that ancient Near East literature was, was used. And so when it refers to Israel going and wiping out all the peoples, all the men, all the women, and all the children, it's really, that was a, an ancient Near East way of saying that they won, that they, that they actually were victorious. And so I think sometimes we look at that and go, oh my gosh, how could God allow them to kill you know, men, women, and children, people who weren't even in these battles and, and all the animals? And, and I think that's where we have to step back and look at the context. You know, one, one good example for us to talk about is Jericho. And so um, looking at Jericho, Jericho is one of those main stories we, we read and we say, wow, you know, they killed everybody. You look at Jericho and you see that the Israelite army walked around the, 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 the border of Jericho for seven days in a row and they blew trumpets. And then on the seventh day, they blew trumpets. They walked around seven times and blew trumpets and the walls fell and then they ran in and killed everybody. And, you know, opponents of the Bible say, well, see, God's just a bloodthirsty maniac. But if you look back at archaeological evidence, what they found was that Jericho was a military outpost. That Jericho actually probably only had about 100 people, 100 military, 100 soldiers living there, and maybe some, some military leaders. Um, and so, you know, it was when the battle happened, it was literally a battle. It was Israel's army versus the Canaan army that lived in Jericho. And so when it says all men, all women, all children, all animals were killed, that's just a way of saying that, that they won the battle and that Israel ended up defeating the army of Canaan that was at Jericho. Yeah, Jericho, it really is a military outpost. It's out there on the frontier. The geogra- geography of how these battles uh, happened was it's just across the, the, the Jordan River. So Israel, Israel is on the west east eastern side of, of the Jordan River. They cross early in, in the book of Joshua, and then uh, Jericho is the first thing that's there. And uh, it, we know Jericho was small, one, because of the archaeological remains that they found. Two, if you just think about it logically, um, if you're going to march around something um, seven times in a day, like how long can someone walk in a day? Like 20 miles would be pretty extreme, right? Maybe 30 if you're in shape, if you're a marathon runner, of course, you can go a lot longer. But if Jericho was was one square mile, that means that the perimeter was four square mile or four miles around. Mm-hmm. So if you do that walk once per day for six days, no problem, four miles. But then on that last day, when you come and march around, a, march four miles seven times, that's 28 miles. That's about the, the peak of, of what a... A, a person could do. And so Jericho could not have been much bigger than that. And a square mile is pretty small, especially if you're talking military outpost. It was not a population center. It was it was a military outpost that had barracks, that had weaponry storage. It did have some administration areas because a lot of the money and the taxes had to come through that area. That's where they kept treasuries for the, the region. 
but there were not a lot of women and children inside of there. Most of the people were living out and they would come towards the city, towards the city to do business. Not only that, but the word for king, Melech, which we read a king of Jericho, a king can be translated a lot of different ways. And in this case, it's not a king as in a great regional ruler. It's more like the mayor of a city or, or the military commander of that outpost. So there's a lot of things that we can see makes Jericho not a city. There's not a lot of women and children, even beasts in there, other than beasts of burden that were used for, by the military and that kind of thing. They, they knew the Israelites were coming. And so all of those people, the vulnerable people, had fled into the hills, just like the spies uh, in, in earlier in Joshua fled into the hills to hide. So the other thing I'll say is that even, even if every man, woman, and child and beast were killed, we still find these people groups later on in the biblical story. Like it's not genocide. They are still there and, and still doing stuff. No, that's interesting to think about with like the size of Jericho. Like I didn't think about that with the perimeter where like how many laps did they do? <laughs> yeah. And then like, yeah, no, that's interesting to think about with the mileage too. I mean, I mean, I'm sure that like the Israelites were trained in wandering the desert, so they probably, <laughs> you know, they probably had some good cardio. But yeah, you're gonna walk 28 miles and then go fight a battle. I was just thinking right? about like, that. Yeah. Isn't that like sort of like uh, God kind of saying, "Hey, I got this. Don't worry about your, you know, we'll t- I'll take care of you guys. You guys do what I say, and you know, it doesn't matter if you guys have you know 20 some miles on your feet today." Like anybody feel like when you go on vacation, you go somewhere and you walk around town all day at the end of the day, you're like, whew, it's like, can you imagine? Hey, now time, Hey, time for a fight. Like, <laughs> yeah, like right. tap, tap, I'm out. <laughs> so, but, yeah. but then what about Rahab? Uh, tell me about that, Drew. Yeah. You know, that's one of the arguments people make. Well, hold on. It couldn't have been just a military outpost because Rahab and her family lived there. And we see Rahab referred to as a prostitute. But when you look at, um, really at the text, you see that she was the innkeeper, right? She kept the tavern. And it was not uncommon the for the... Soldiers got to have a way to unwind with the beer and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So this was, you know, a very pagan culture, remember. And so the idea was, this was a, a small military outpost, and Rahab and her family ran the motel and the bar, right? And and so when the spies from Israel came in, they stayed at, at the hotel at the inn. They stayed with her. And um and but she recognized God in the midst and let them and and you know help them get away. I thought it was escape. always interesting with her is that the stories of what God had done through Egypt had reached these people and saying, hey, mm-hmm. and it's like she I mean she showed some repentance to like, hey, your God's better right? than our God. I kind of, we talked a few episodes back, like on free will, like what would have happened if the city of Jericho, like after a few laps are like, Hey guys, we've heard the stories. We get it. Peace. Like, how do we do this? Right. Yeah. I think if they would have came out and repented, you know, God would have shown them mercy, you know? And so yeah, these, these armies in Canaan, they knew the Israelites were coming. And so if you look at the two, the, really the two, the first two battles, it's Jericho and AI, or, you know, you can pronounce it as I, or those first two were the ones that everybody got wiped out. And so you say, well, they came in and they just killed everybody. But again, AI was a military outpost and they were there for, to fight the battle. And so these armies were ready to fight Israel. And so Rob, you asked earlier, you know, why? Like, why did God want to push them out? Why did they come in and fight these battles with the Canaanites? Well, I think at the heart of it is that God wanted to get rid of the idolatrous worship 
of the Canaanites, right? God had prepared his people, like we talked about earlier. God had been telling them with the Shema, as we said, you're going to go into the new promised land, and you're going to move into this new place. Remember, I am the only God. So don't get distracted by these, these fake gods and all this false worship. And so the Israelite army and the people were to come in, and they were to drive out, really, the Canaanite religion. It wasn't that they were supposed to kill everybody. It was that they were supposed to push out the Canaanite religion to get rid of the idolatry, to get rid of the, the, the worship of false gods, and so that Israel's people could have their home and they could worship God and be a light to the nations. And so I think as Canaanites would have repented of that and would have believed in, in Yahweh, the God of the Bible, they would have been welcomed into that community. So I think that, it, yes, there was some judgment, nation against nation. God was using the Israelites as a, as a as a theocracy to come in and judge the sin of the Canaanites. But also, it, it was really about pushing out the evil, idolatrous worship of these false gods. No, that's interesting to think about where it's, it's about pushing out the religion and that of all, I go back to this. I think I say about every week is with the Israelites with all the stuff they've seen. It's like, hey, we still got to make sure you don't fall back to these false gods. Like yeah, that was their. That's their. That's going to be their biggest problem going forward is that they actually didn't push out the Canaanite religion, and they kept going back and worshiping those Canaanite gods. It's no. just the ancient Near East idea, like, oh, Baal is the the god of this land. We got to make sure that he's he's appeased. Like God, but Yahweh, God, is like no. That's ridiculous. Stop it. <laughs> it's yeah, no, it's crazy to think that. Or it's like after all the stuff they see, and they're going, "Oh yeah, we, you know, like especially generationally, it's not like this is happening." Like how how far is Jericho here in Joshua from the from the Exodus of Egypt? Like how many years, generations are they out now? It's the forty years, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, forty one maybe. So it's like they've seen yeah. they've been following a pillar of smoke and a fire. Yeah. And they go, oh yeah, this stills. We gotta figure this out. Hey, I'm um, I'm gonna speculate. Alarm oh, bell yes. going off. Ooh. If uh, imagine imagine you're a parent of an Israelite kid who your generation was the one who wouldn't go into the promised land. I feel like you would be telling your children that, hey, you're gonna have another chance, and you need to do it better. Right? Is wouldn't that make a lot of sense for them to be telling the stories about what happened to them? Uh, so that's actually actually something I've put in, in the sermon bumper. Uh, coming up here is that the, these Israelite kids grew up, this generation who who's going to the promised land heard about the failure of their parents. So they, they've got to do it right. No, it's interesting. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things that stand out to me, um, Rob, is when we were in, if you grew up in the church and you grew up in Sunday school and you talked about Joshua, you got up the flannel graph board. And it was like the Israelite army storms Canaan. They take the whole land and they wipe them all out. But really what you see, it was an incremental move. As they moved into the land, they began to spread out. And you began to see that the Canaanite people began to move, begin to get pushed out and to relocate too. So it wasn't that they came in and stole everybody's home. But as the army came in, because of the fear of them, a lot of these Canaanite people were driven out. They moved out. They found new homes. And archaeological evidence actually supports this. And they found that, that over the course of time that many of these Canaanite civilizations, they relocated as the Israelites moved in. So with all the information going back to his God, a moral monster, like sure, he used them for judgment, but then there's that, well, he, there's a lot of death still. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of 
rated R things going on that you wouldn't want let your kids watch here in Joshua if it was you know a movie. Like what 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 would you tell someone to go like yeah this doesn't seem like what a loving God would do. I would say something I mentioned in the past, especially with the flood, um, that yeah God is love, but there's a double side of love, and I take it to a higher principle that God is good. And from God's goodness, love and justice flow in equal measure. And they're really two sides of the same thing. You know, and and a parent can understand this really well, that if your kid is running into the street, you were going to yell and scream at your kid to stop. And you might go and grab them physically and, and be rougher with them than you might just to get them out of the way of that. And so there, that's an act of love. And yet you're, you're, you have some force as you're doing that of course all metaphors break down and so yeah god is in these stories we read is a little bit more extreme um but the, the judgment is a good thing our our culture loves justice it but but we've disembodied the idea of justice from the source of justice which really is god and the creator of the universe who, who sets all things in motion so as soon as you disembody the concept of justice from the person of God, all of a sudden you can't really define what justice is anymore. We in America cannot decide on how to carry out justice anymore because we've detached it from that source of God. And so we have to, ha- we have to go back to that and understand that, yeah, if you constantly mess up, there, there, there are going to be consequences. Um, in this day and age, God's not just going to smite you with some foreign army. I mean, he might, who knows what's going to happen, but at the same time, God's going to allow you the mercy to live out your life, and the consequences of your choices will eventually get you in, in one way or another, unless you have a lot of money and you can try to pay everybody off. But then even so, we're headed towards this one destination in our life um, that, that's going to lead us towards complete separation from God. I'm always worried about those churches in Jefferson County doing loops around our property. <laughs> do they do that? Have you seen them out there? <laughs> no, oh. like, if they start going around with trumpets and like doing laps around, you know, Parker area, I'd be like, hey, well, what's going on here, guys? We don't have many big walls. <laughs> oh, that's good. You know, the only thing I would add to that, I always going to say I, the exact same thing is, you know, God is good. And you think about, we, we, we want to detach the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament, and, and you can't. They're the same God. And we see through Jesus God's character and God's attributes. And we see that God loves us so much that Jesus came and died for our sin to remove our sin from us. And that, that's God's grace and God's mercy. And so in the Old Testament, for God's people, he did the same thing. He came in and he put, tried to push away the temptation to fall into idolatrous worship. And he tried to push away the temptation of all these false gods to, to allow his people to live this new life that he's brought them to live. So I, I think that's what God's always trying to get us to see, that his way is right and that he has what's best for us in mind all the time. What's interesting to think about is that when this is all going on with however we define the Trinity with them, you know, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit, you know, always it's like when people talk about like Jesus's love and all those, you know, the, uh, let's call it for like the progressive Jesus or new age Jesus. It's like, he's actually sitting there while this is going on in judgment in unison with God, the father. Well, even if we look in Revelation, like Jesus is a warrior on a horse. What, he's got a flaming sword coming out of his mouth? 
like some people, I, I remember Matt Chandler preaching about this. He's like, that's the Jesus I want. <laughs> like, I, want I want the flame and sword mouth Jesus. I don't want the lovey dovey because that's just who Matt Chandler is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, that's funny. Yeah. It was just kind of interesting where it's like, where you go like, yeah, this, you know, Jesus is like, you know, when people don't want to talk about the old Testament, like, well, he was, you know, there when this was going on too, in agreement with God, the father that, you know, judgment was being laid down and people don't want to, it's like, so then when I, it's like, do people then are, they are creating Jesus in their image going, no, I don't want to talk about mm-hmm. that Jesus. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the Jesus that I like, because I don't, Jesus I like, likes what I like. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think at the end any of the parting day, thoughts, is, any parting thoughts yeah, at here? the end of the day, yeah, is, is God a moral monster? No, he's not. God is a, a God of love who is good, who also judges sin. And God wants to make a way for his people to learn to trust him and follow him. Darren, any parting thoughts? Yeah, I'll say something. Uh, we didn't talk a whole lot about um, the the sin with Achan and I and how they, they got, the Israelite army got defeated there. Um, there's a whole other discussion on, on Hebrew word um, that means devoted to the ban or devoted things you read. It's just like religiously devoted things that are supposed to be set aside for God. And Achan keeps some of this back, and therefore the Israelite army gets defeated at Ai. And up until this point, Jer- uh, yeah, Jericho had been defeated. Everyone in Canaan was melting away in fear of the Israelite army. And what I, I asked the question, what would have happened if Achan would not have kept back part of those devoted things? If he would instead of keeping some treasure for himself, giving it to God like he should have. And and then, you know, God would have allowed the Israelites to defeat Ai. I think that, honestly, the rest of Canaan would have been a cakewalk. Everyone would have left because they knew that there was no stopping these people. They had already destroyed two outposts. They're, they're, they're numerous to stand on the seashore, and they're coming for us. Like, we, we, can't, we can't survive. But what happens when Israel gets defeated at Ai is that all of a sudden, the rest of the Canaanite peoples... There's five of them, I think. They come together, and they actually form an alliance against Israel, and they come and fight Israel. Israel is actually on the defensive after their loss and then uh, victory at Ai because because of the sin of, of, of the one person. And uh, you might have some questions about, you know, why why was Achan, you know, the sin of the one affecting the sin of the many? Um, a lot more is to be said about that, of course, but... Um, it, if Israel would have been faithful, if we can only be faithful, like God's, God's enemies would just melt in fear. Uh, but because of human sin, God has to work within that. He chooses to work within us to try and figure out way, ways for, for good things to happen. So I think the whole, the whole book of Joshua should have gone a lot easier than it did. Because, um, yeah, the, the Canaanites, as Rahab said, we're melting in fear. We know what your God did in Egypt. So, um, yeah, if only we would have been faithful. If only Jesus would have been the entire people of Israel, but he wasn't. That's kind of what we live in. No, that's the interesting thing about like the more faithful we are, the more, I don't know if that's a great a linear thought and sense, but like, you know, God can take care of the problems. Mm-hmm. Being faithful to him. Yeah, and it's, you know what I love about how Paul talks about in the New Testament, you know, the old in Romans 15, you know, everything that was written in the Old Testament was written for us. 
And so while we aren't in the same situation they are, we can see how these things play out in our life too when it comes to faithfulness and living out this new life we have in Jesus. And so what can we learn from, from Joshua and what can we learn from these stories? There's so much we can take away to our faith that just comes back to that, that age-old idea of be faithful to God in the small things because God is always faithful to us. No, absolutely. If you have questions, if you have thoughts, I mean, big topic today is God a moral monster. If you have thoughts or questions on that, send them to us here at life at forefrontchurch.tv or if you're at Forefront on Sundays, feel free to drop them off in the boxes in the back of the worship center. But guys, I appreciate your time. Pastor Darren Enns, thank you so much. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Drew. Pastor Drew, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, guys. And thank you for listening. And once again, I'm Rob Blasey for Forefront Church. You have been listening to More to the Story, a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Enns of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, More to the Story podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of More to the Story.